let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We left off in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Isn't it great to not be shopping this morning? Anybody like, wow, so nice to, to not be shopping. I've got a conspiracy theory with Black Friday. You guys want to hear it? Well, because if you don't, I've got the mic. So, but uh, I think that they raised the prices on Tuesday so that when you go get them on Friday, they're 50% off, but they got a little spike. What do you guys think? Think that maybe happens sometimes? All right. Hey, well, you know what? We get to study the Bible for free. Isn't that incredible? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness, and Lord, we uh, do thank you for this time of year. We just pray uh, that we could focus in upon you, and Lord, we quiet our hearts this morning and ask that you would speak to us, that you would show us more about Christ. Please send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into your truth. Give me grace and strength in communicating your word. We know that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a group of Greeks that came to Andrew in the Gospels and Philip, and they made this request, and they said, Sirs, we wish to see Jesus. And isn't that a great request? I mean, think of all of the things maybe that you would ask of Christ, all the things that were asked by him through the Gospels. Would you heal my daughter? I'm blind. But these men, they simply wanted to see Jesus. So Philip and Andrew, they bring these men to Jesus, and Jesus then works in their life. And that's what I've titled this message this morning, is we see Jesus. There'll be one phrase that we find in Hebrews 2 where it declares that, we see Jesus. And that's our focus this morning, that's our prayer this morning, is that we would see and understand Jesus in a greater way. If you were with us last week as we studied the book of Hebrews, there was a warning given to us to pay more attention to the things that we've heard so we don't drift away. And we talked about how we're anchored to Jesus Christ. And then the rest of this chapter gives us that comfort. So we have the exhortation in the first four verses, but now we have this comfort as the author of Hebrews, ultimately the Holy Spirit, is going to describe Jesus to us. The key to not drifting is staying focused upon Jesus Christ walking with him, abiding in him. It's not trying harder, doing better. It's seeing Christ in a greater way. The theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus greater than. You've got a group of believers that are drifting from Christ. They want to go back to the Old Testament, to the law, to Moses, to the prophets. And there's this focus of don't forget Christ, stay centered upon Jesus Christ. I've really been enjoying the book of Hebrews with this simple but profound exhortation to go deeper in Jesus Christ. So let's begin in verse 5 of chapter 2. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Going back to this reoccurring theme of what's the role of angels. Are angels greater than Jesus? No, Jesus is greater than the angels. And in this section, we see the fact that mankind, humanity, is also greater than the angels. God never gave to the angels that they would rule the world. We find that something that's given to us as joint heirs with Christ is that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. This is a quote now from Psalms 8 and verse 6. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? One of the things that elevates us above the angels is the fact that God is mindful of us. It's not that God is mindful of the angels in the same way, 
or that God cares for us in a greater way than he cares for the angels. To get the full magnitude of this quote, we have to go back to Psalms 8, and I'll read it to you. It says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Have you had those moments where behold God's creation? You look at the moon, you look at the stars, you look at the sunset, you go, wow, God, you're so powerful, but yet you're mindful of me. What is it that God would be mindful of us, that he would think about us? The sunsets we've been having have been awesome. Agree? We've had some phenomenal sunsets uh, this week. It's a reminder of God's glory. And I appreciate each one is different. It's, It's not even the same. Sunrises have been glorious as well. And here God's painting this beautiful picture about he's mindful of us. What does he think about us? Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give us a future and a hope. Not only is he thinking about us, but he takes care of us. He's our good shepherd. He knows the number of hairs upon our head. How random. Why would God even care? I don't even care about my hair. It's obvious, but God does. God, God's like, I'm mindful. I, I know where you're going to sit and where you're going to rise. The thoughts that you speak them before you say them. God's mindful of us. In verse 7, it says, you have made him a little lower than the angels. So we're lower than the angels in the sense that we don't have power that the angels do. We find a place in the Old Testament where one angel killed 185,000 enemies of the nation of Israel. We don't possess that kind of power. We've been made a little bit lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. Though we're lower than the angels in power, we have a greater position. God's given us glory and he's given us honor. In what way? In all of God's creation, when you go back to the first few chapters of Genesis, you find only of Adam and Eve that they were created in God's image. When it came to Adam, God said, and let us make him in our image. We're image bearers of God. That's glory and honor that's given to us that isn't given to animals, that isn't given to angels. It's a specific position that God has given to us. You're a triune being. You've got your body, your soul, your spirit. God is a trinity. Even in the way that we're formed, we bear the image of God. Of God. So that's a glory and honor that's given to us. Angels are not sons and daughters of God. They're not sons of glory, but we're sons of glory. We also have been given this position over the works of God's hands. When Adam was created, God said, here's my creation. I want you to have dominion over it. I want you to subdue it. You and Eve be fruitful and multiply. That's something that God gave to us, where we are stewards over his creation. God gave work to Adam before the fall. There's an aspect of work that was prior to the curse. A lot of times we just think of work in the essence of the curse, but it was a part of Adam's life before he fell. When we look into eternity, we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. There's tasks that the Lord's going to to have for us. We've been set over the works of God's hands. In verse 8, you put all things in subjection under his feet. Speaking of humanity and having dominion. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is put under him, but now we do not see all things put under him. So we're fallen. We don't do this perfectly of the stewardship that God has given to us over his creation. In Revelation 20 verse 6, it says, 
But they shall be the priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. At one point, we're going to fulfill this perfectly because Christ is going to return, will be glorified, but we don't see that yet. But this is what we do see. And this is our key phrase this morning, but we see Jesus. So we don't see man in his glorified state. We don't see man doing his job accurately and perfectly, but we see Jesus. Church, is that true this morning? Are you seeing Jesus? Are you gazing upon him? And maybe you know Christ, but are you seeing him afresh? Am I seeing him afresh? Maybe you don't know the Lord, and today is going to be the first day that you see and behold him. But this is the Christian life. It's seeing Christ. This is the anchor to our souls. This is what keeps us from drifting is Christ. So now we have this wonderful attributes of Christ, different things that Christ is and he has done for us as we see him. And the first is, who is made a little lower than the angels. Astounding. God, the creator, he spoke all things into existence, Jesus Christ, but in his humanity, he chose to be a little bit lower than the angels. There's a couple points in Christ's life where angels came and strengthened Jesus. He humbled himself to the point where, as the creator, he was receiving help from his creation. Goes on to say, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Why did Jesus come in humanity? For the purpose of dying, for the purpose of suffering upon the cross. As he suffered, then he's crowned with glory and honor. We appreciate all aspects of Jesus Christ, but what wins our hearts to Christ is his crucifixion. That's where we look at Christ, we look at the Father, and we bestow the greatest amount of glory and honor. It was the suffering unto death that he experienced. Why did he suffer? That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. By God's grace, unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, Grace, the Greek word is charis. It means a gift that comes from outside of ourselves. So here's God saying, I want to be gracious. I want to be gracious to mankind. So I'm going to send my son to come as a man. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. He's going to taste death for everyone. This is the first thing that we consider about Jesus is Jesus the taster. Jesus the taster. And I think that might be the most unusual point I've ever had in a sermon. I mean, what does that do to your mind? It's like, what does that mean? Jesus the taster. But look here, it says that he might taste death for everyone. The idea in this word taste is not that he sampled. Jesus didn't sample death, but he tasted death and that he partook in it fully. As he partook in death fully, then he had the victory over the grave. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then we shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus ate of death so that we could all experience life. He conquered it. Jesus is the taster for us by his grace. Yesterday was an interesting day for me because I went to a funeral at one o'clock of a friend of mine, and I know his kids even better, and just a dear friends to us for a lot of years, and he had gone home to be with the Lord, and so we celebrated his life and him going home to be with the Lord. 
as a funeral at one o'clock, and I attended that. And then I did a wedding at four o'clock. And so I drove from the funeral to the wedding. And I showed up at the wedding, and I'm looking at the order of service. And I feel an extra level of pressure when it comes to weddings. Because if I mess up during this sermon, which I do regularly, it's not that big of a deal. It's not your wedding. You're going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And we'll all forget by next week, hopefully. But with a wedding, it's kind of there and it's permanent. So I'm looking at all the details and trying to make sure that I can pronounce their name right and all this stuff. And I was talking to the wedding coordinator. I said, I got to get my, my mind into wedding mode. I, I just came from this, this, this time of, of grieving and I got to shift gears here. And a lot of times life kind of goes that way, doesn't it? You know, you have this immense amount of suffering and then there's this other part of your life where there's a little bit of rejoicing. I've seen families where, you know, their sister has passed away on the same day that their wife has a baby. And so in one moment, you're experiencing new life. And the next moment, you're experiencing passing. And it's all kind of mixed together, this giant, giant mixture. And so I was going through that and then reflecting on this study, taught this sermon for the first time last night at, at 6.30. And I was just, Lord, thank you. You tasted death. You, you experienced death so that when we bury loved ones who are in Christ, the grave doesn't have the final word. Death wears your sting. Jesus is the taster. And by his grace, he's brought victory over death for us. We've all experienced death in some very deep ways. Some of you have lost children, buried parents, buried your spouse. But yet, not all of us, none of us, have partaken of death fully. Why? Because you're alive. You're here this morning and you're breathing. You may feel dead, but you're alive. You may feel asleep. You're like, this pastor just goes on and on and on. And Is this going to be the death of me? Possibly. It might be. But right now, at this moment, you're alive. We haven't experienced it fully. Christ experienced it fully so that death could be our ultimate graduation. He conquered it. In verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. An interesting phrase, for it was fitting for him. It means proper and right. Jesus saw it as being fitting, as proper and right, even though all things were created for him and all things exist by him, that he would humble himself so that he could bring wretched sinners like me, like you, to a place that we could be called sons and daughters of glory. There's no greater position than being a son or a daughter. It's the height of relationship. And so God takes us from this sinful condition where we're dead apart from Christ, where we're wretched apart from Christ. And he suffered, he died to bring us into relationship with him where he would call us sons of glory. To make perfect through suffering, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Do you think Jesus wasn't perfect before he suffered? Absolutely not. Christ was perfect before his incarnation, before his crucifixion, before his resurrection. Are we agreed on that? Absolutely, Christ was perfect. So what does this verse mean that the captain of our salvation became perfect through suffering? It means that he won our hearts and our adoration through suffering. 
And this is the next thing to consider about Jesus is he is our commander. Jesus, the commander. Think about if you have a boss, a commander in the military, a coach at any particular time. When do they win your loyalty? A lot of times it's when they sacrifice for you. I played a lot of basketball growing up and I had an eighth grade coach named Mr. Shea. Great coach, a great man of God. He would take us on these basketball tournaments and you know, talk basketball cards and baseball cards with us and then talk to us about, about Christ. He was six foot one, maybe six foot two, and then his wife was maybe 4'10", 4'11". So when the two of them came into the gym, you were kind of like, I'm trying not to look, but I'm going to look, you know, especially as a middle school student. But what was really unique about him that made me listen to him is he did all of the running with us. And conditioning is a huge part of basketball. If you're going to have a good basketball team, you've got to be in good shape. If someone's late for practice, a lot of times coaches punish the whole team and say, okay, everybody's got to run this much more. And Mr. Shea would do every step of the running with us, and he became our captain. He became our commander. He became the person that we listened to, and that's what we find in Jesus. Jesus is our commander, and he wins our loyalty by dying for our sins. He became our savior, but he also becomes our commander. I hope that you know the absolute joy of allowing Jesus to be your commander, of allowing him to be your captain, because this is where abundant life is found. Not easy life, but abundant life is found when we surrender and we say, Jesus, you caused me to be a son of glory. You caused me to be a daughter of glory. So I'm responding to you and I'm allowing you to be my captain. I'm daily choosing your will above my own. One of my favorite worship songs really puts this into words, sons of glory, and it's called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I'm going to read it to you. I'd really like to sing it to you, but I'm going to spare you the pain, okay? So reflect on the truth of this passage depicted in this song. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he could give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why, what should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. What a captain, what a commander, the captain of our salvation. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. Jesus is the identifier. He's the one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified and we are one. Do you ever get lost in Bible words, Bible terms? Anybody bold enough to say, I get lost in Bible words and Bible terms? All right, all 50 of you, praise the Lord. <laughs> I think if we're honest, we all get lost in Bible words and Bible uh, terms. Like, who uses the word sanctified in your normal everyday life? 
hey, are you being sanctified or I'm being sanctified? It's probably not a word that we use a lot. What does it mean? To be sanctified is to be set apart for the purpose of being made holy. It's a process. Justification is to be declared righteous. The moment that you receive Christ as your Savior, you were declared righteous. But we're in this process of being sanctified. And who does it? Jesus sanctifies. He's the one who's doing that work. Isn't that encouraging? We don't do it in and of ourselves. He's the one who sanctifies. We're the ones being sanctified, but we're one. Jesus identifies with us to the point where he's not ashamed to call us brethren, verse 11. Verse 12 is a quote from Psalms 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. Jesus calls us brethren. This is such an important truth. Jesus is not ashamed of you. A lot of times in our sin, in our struggle, in our process of being sanctified, we think that Jesus is ashamed of us. We think in those moments of struggle, he's looking down on us. He rejects us. He forsakes us. Maybe you had that experience as a kid. You blew it, and you could see the look on your parents' face where they're like, I'm not sure if I should own you right now or not. You're somebody else's kid. Whose kid is this? Uh, uh, that would be her mom's kid. You know, that, not my kid at this point. I picture like a kid in the grocery store sticking all kinds of candy in his pockets, coming out of the back pockets and the front pockets, and then gets caught, and those working at the grocery store is like, whose kid is this? Nobody answers, you know. <laughs> in those moments, we're busted in our sin. We're caught in our sin, and we think that Jesus doesn't identify with us any longer, that he's ashamed of us, and Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to say, that's my son, that's my daughter. I've paid the price for them. I'm going to walk with them as they go through this process of sanctification. In just a moment, I want you to say this because I want you to remember it. Jesus is not ashamed of me. So in just a moment, Jesus is not ashamed of me. Okay, it's your turn. The count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Jesus is not of me. Now I want you to say it like you mean it, like you really believe it. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Jesus is not of me. Isn't that radical? Isn't that awesome? I'm so blessed by this. This causes my heart to worship that Jesus wouldn't be ashamed of me in the midst of my struggle, that he declares, this is my brethren. And it goes on in this same point. And again, I will put my trust in him. This is a quote from Psalms 102, verse 25, that Jesus is trusting in the Father in this process of sanctification. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. This is Jesus speaking from Psalm, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 22, where he calls us his children. In verse 14, we find that Jesus is the destroyer. Insomuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. We have flesh and blood. We have a physical body. Jesus had a physical body. Flesh and blood. He partake in the same. It's important to understand about Jesus. There was a false teaching that Jesus just came in the spiritual realm. He was a spirit, but didn't have flesh and blood. Jesus had flesh and blood. He had a physical body. He understood everything that we go through in the human experience. He knew what Monday morning felt like. He knew what a bad night of sleep felt like. The stomach flu. I found a new word that I really appreciated. I never 
understood this was even a word. It's vomiter. Did you know that that's a word in the dictionary? I'm sure you've heard of the word vomit, but when you vomit, then you become the vomiter. Isn't that cool? (laughs) I just think that's cool. So at one point in Jesus' life, or several points, I'm sure he was the vomiter. You know, he, he had the full human experience. I know blasphemy, huh? You're like, I'm finding another church, but forgive me. It's how my mind works. The same human experience he shared in the same for this purpose, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So he destroyed the power of death and he destroyed the devil. Prior to Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, Satan could hold death over us, but not any longer. You have to understand that as the destroyer, Jesus destroyed Satan. There's a real spiritual battle that we're in. But it's not one that we're fighting to see if we can attain the victory. It's already been attained. Christ is defeated. Scripture tells us, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He's defeated. He's a roaring lion who is defeated. Stand your ground in Jesus Christ in the armor that God has given to us. In verse 15, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ is the liberator. Jesus is the liberator. He destroyed death and Satan to bring us into this liberation where we don't have to fear death any longer. The way this is phrased is powerful. All their lifetime subject to bondage. Going through their whole life held captive to the prison of the fear of death. I think this is a lot closer to home than we want to acknowledge if we take some time to think about it. Are we afraid of death? How does this fear can control our lives? When you see a four-year-old die in a car accident, in the back of your mind, you go, man, what if that's my four-year-old daughter? How would I respond? And all of a sudden, it becomes a lot closer to home that that may be a possibility. When an eight-year-old dies of cancer, and you go home and you hug your eight-year-old daughter and you hold your eight-year-old daughter, all of a sudden those fears come a little closer to home of, what if that's my little girl? It's a possibility. And there's a 42-year-old woman who's running and jogging and exercises and dies of a heart attack somewhere in the back of your mind, what if that's my wife? What if death comes for her and she's taken from me, this one that I love so much in this life? It's a little closer to home. Some of you may be very strict on your diet of what you eat because you're afraid of death. Say, I got to prolong this. I got to prolong my life. So I'm going to eat healthy and do all of these things. And you do the research. Well, I've got news for you. 10 out of 10 people that eat organic, they die. (laughs) It's going to happen one way or the other. Maybe the reason that you go to the treadmill so religiously, so regularly, is thinking that it'll save you from death. 10 out of 10 people that use a treadmill, they die. It still happens. Now, I've changed my tune on this a little bit as I've gotten older. Throughout my 20s, I just ate whatever, ate as many hamburgers as I could, and ice cream, and all these things, never exercised. Now I'm trying to eat healthy, and I do exercise. Yes, Lazarus is risen from the dead. God still does miracles. 
I understand that it adds a quality to your life and there's some stewardship there. But is it out of fear? Are you doing it out of fear? Because I've seen people in their 50s that have done all the right things. They're in great shape and they die of cancer. And I've also seen people that are 94 years old and they drink a six pack every day and smoke a carton of cigarettes. And you're like, what in the world? I mean, here's this guy that's done everything right and he dies at 52. And then here's this guy that's abusing his body left and right. And he lives to be 94 years old. At the end of the day, we're not in control. Amen. We're not in control. And we've got to release this over to the Lord to say, I'm not going to fear death anymore. I'm not going to go to the gym out of this fear of death. I'm going to go to the gym out of the joy of the Lord. Amen? I'm going to go to the gym out of the fact that I know my Savior and I want to be a good steward of my body, but I'm not going out of the fear of death. This marked me early on in my life because death, as a family, we experienced it. Uh, I was dating a gal in high school and I had moved to Utah with my family. She stayed in Southern Oregon and she passed away in a car accident. 16 years old, she just got her driver's license. A snowy day, uh, icy day there in Southern Oregon and supposed to be at school. Instead, she's in heaven. Went into a telephone pole, that was it. She was home with the Lord. Another friend, her name was Kim Peck. It was her 17th birthday. Celebrated her birthday Friday evening. And then she is getting ready for church Sunday morning, and she dies in the bathroom. No one knows why. She collapsed dead. The autopsy shows that she was born with one artery that was too small. She was a ticking time bomb. She was going to go home to be with the Lord. God had that planned for her the day that she was born. So here, 16, 17 years old, experiencing death, and it marked me. And in the back of my mind, I said, you know, I don't know if I want to get married, because there's this real possibility that my wife will die. And I was living in this bondage, in this fear of death. It was inhibiting me from loving the way that God intended. Then I met Amber years later. I'm 22 years old. Didn't date from the time I was 16 to the time I was, I was 22. And I was scared. I was scared spitless because I could tell that I was really falling for her. And if I spent time with her, I was going to love her and there would be this bond. And what if God takes her from me? And First few years of marriage, I'm, my mind, I'm thinking it's just a matter of time. It's in, inevitable. This is going to be my, my future. God is going to take, take my spouse from me at, at some point. And it was absolute bondage. I even had a plan of like, okay, if Amber dies, this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to go. This is where I would go for solace and, and refuge. Isn't that garbage? That's a terrible way to live, isn't it? And God began to work that out of me and set me free. And thankfully, I can report to you this morning, I don't live in that place. I actually picture myself getting old with Amber, which is a lot of fun to think about, and it is happening. (laughs) But it slips in there if we're not careful, doesn't it? And I know some of you are living in that place where you're fearing death, and it's keeping you from living. It's keeping you from loving. It's keeping you from investing. And you can't really truly live until you let go of the fear of death. And Jesus wants to be your liberator this morning and set you free. Verse 16, for indeed, he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. The last point this morning is Jesus is the helper. He doesn't aid the angels. He reserves that help 
to the seed of Abraham. This phrase, the seed of Abraham, goes back to the book of Genesis, where we find God promising to Abraham that his descendants would be multiplied as the stars of heaven. This is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the seed, the descendant of Abraham, that then everyone who believes in Christ is technically in this seed of Abraham. And that's why this expression, Father Abraham. So all those who are in Christ, that's who God gives his help to. God is promising his help to us. In verse 17, therefore in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. So Jesus became like us in all things except that he never sinned. He was tempted like us. He had a human body like us. He had all the struggles of this life, yet he never gave in to the temptation. And this is the purpose, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus became like us so that he could be the faithful and merciful high priest. The combination is very necessary when receiving help. The context of this is that Jesus is aiding us. If someone's merciful but they're not faithful, would you go to them for help? Probably not, because you couldn't count on them. They're great with compassion and they're great with mercy, but they're not faithful. They don't come through when they said they would. Then there's other people in your life that are extremely faithful, but they're not merciful, and you won't go to them either because they give you that look. You know the look I'm talking about. It's the look that you're a loser, you need to be more responsible, and so you find yourself going, I'd rather suffer alone than to go to them. They're faithful, but they lack mercy and this perfect balance in Jesus. He's merciful, but he's also faithful, and he is the high priest. These are Jews that are primarily receiving this letter, and they wouldn't understand the position of the high priest in the Old Testament. The high priest, one day a year on Day of Atonement, would make sacrifice for the nation of Israel, take the blood and put it upon the mercy seat, and God would meet the children of Israel at the mercy seat and pardon the sin. And that was all pointing to Jesus, where the high priest is also the sacrifice. The high priest is also the lamb, and he's slain for us for propitiation, which means to appease the wrath of. That's another really big Bible word, propitiation, and it means that Jesus appeased the wrath of the Father through his sacrifice as he became the faithful and merciful high priest. If Jesus would go to this extent to save us, to cause us to be sons and daughters of glory, do you think that he would desire to help us today in all facets of our life? And a lot of times we kind of check out. We go, well, God saved me, but he really doesn't want to help me. No, he does. He's the faithful and merciful high priest that has provided propitiation for our sins. Verse 18, it's our last verse this morning. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are being tempted. So he himself has suffered. This is a bold statement, but it's absolutely true. Is Jesus understands all areas of suffering that we go through in our life. There's not any suffering that we can go through in this life where we can look into the face of Jesus Christ and say, you don't understand. He suffered for us so that we could come to him and experience comfort. No one else can understand. Nobody else walks your shoes. No one knows your loss. No one knows your betrayal. But Jesus, he suffered.
And then he, being tempted, is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus was tempted. In his humanity, he was tempted, yet without sin. He understands our temptation. He knows what it's like to be tempted with sexual sin, to be tempted with anger, to be tempted with covetousness and bitterness. He understands pride so that we can go to him in the moments that we're tempted. Have you ever watched two people that have had the same injury get together and talk about it? Let's say for sake of example, it's one of those boots that you get on your foot when you've hurt your ankle. Have you guys seen those? It's kind of the new cast, and they've been around for for years now. And two people, when they've had that on, and they get together and they talk about it, they go, you know what, when I got that silly boot off, you should have seen my calf muscle. It went down to nothing. And now I just had this little peg of a leg, a little twig of a leg. Yeah, me too, me too. And then physical therapy, oh, physical therapy. It was so painful and the scar tissue and I was crying for my mom. Oh, me too. And it's just going, going back and forth. And then if you haven't had one of those boots on, you're kind of going, oh, this is interesting, but I can't really relate. I've never been through that experience. So here's God. And we cry out in our temptation. God's not going, I don't understand that. I don't know what that feels like. Come on, get your act together. Jesus is like, oh yeah, I, I know what that temptation was like. I was tempted like you are, yet without sin. So that's when we come to Christ for the help. That's when we come to Christ for the aid. Overcoming temptation is not necessarily trying harder on your own. It's running to Jesus. It's running to Christ saying, this is really getting my attention. And God, I need your help. And I'm falling in this over and over again. And you were tempted like me, and would you help me? I'm crying out to you, Jesus Christ. This is going to be developed more, and we're going to see this truth unfold at the end of chapter 4. You can read ahead, but Jesus is the one who helps us in the midst of our temptation. We see Jesus. He's our anchor. He's our everything. He's greater than our drifting. As we focus on Christ, fall in love with Christ, abide in Christ, he's our taster. He's our commander. He's our identifier. He's our destroyer. He's our liberator. He's our helper. Let me ask you a few application questions. Let's consider these together. Is Jesus my captain, my commander? If you come into that relationship with Jesus Christ, it's like I full on want him to be my commander, my captain. He's won my heart and my loyalty. Do I believe that Jesus is not ashamed of me, that he identifies with me? This would be a great morning if some laid hold of this truth that Jesus is not ashamed of you. When you sin and you fail and you fall short, like we all do, Jesus doesn't put his hands in his pocket and go, I don't know who he belongs to. Oh man, you know, I don't know what church he goes to. He better, get, he better sign up for one of those classes, goodness gracious. And it doesn't do that. Hey, that's my boy. That's my daughter. That's my son of glory. That's my daughter of glory. And I'm going to walk with him as he goes through this. I think that's a great lesson for us as we disciple people. Jesus called us to make disciples. And part of it is passing on information. The truth of God's word. How to study it. Going through a discipleship book together. But it's not just informational. It's also relational. And so when someone messes up and they blow it as the child of God, you don't give up on them. 
You don't go, oh, my time is wasted. I couldn't believe that they, they did this. You continue to identify with them and walk through them. Do I believe that Jesus is not ashamed of me? Do I live in the prison of fearing death? Do I live in the prison of fearing death? Do you fear your own death? It's in the Lord's hands. He's already written your days down in a book. He's got it planned out. Victory's been won. It's your ultimate graduation. You may not fear your own death, but you fear the death of a loved one, and it's caused you to be paralyzed. Let God minister to your heart. And then finally, do I experience the help of my faithful and merciful high priest? Am I allowing the Lord to help me? He's, he's ready to help. Would you stand with me and let's pray together? Father, we ask that right now that you would bring application in our lives. And as we have talked about your word and studied it together, that we could see Jesus in a greater way, going rejoicing in who he is, drawing near to him. Jesus, would you come and fill our hearts? Would you liberate us from the fear of death? Would you help us? We're going to face temptation throughout today, tomorrow. We need your help. Help us to run to you in those moments of, of temptation. We love you. We thank you. We, we surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.